In life, we all have people that we look up to for protection, for guidance, and to inspire us to become our best selves. These role models can take on many forms, but I believe that an essential role model that everyone needs in their life is a father figure. For most of history, father figures were not only common, but were considered an essential part of society. However, over the past decades, these ideals have begun to change. Today, over 30% of children grow up without a father or a father figure in their home. This often leads to a greater chance of drug or alcohol abuse, mental problems, and a score of other challenges as well. These are, of course, concerning, but there is a greater threat hidden beneath all of this. I've seen in my life that boys who grow up without a male figure to look up to don't know how to be men. And when it comes to girls, they have a harder time trusting men or letting them in. You may think that's not true, but ask yourselves this. How can you learn to be a man or learn to respect them if they're not in your life? While there are many ways that we could solve this problem, I believe the best way to solve it is to follow the commitment of this series and focus on the stories of great father figures in history and my personal life. This is impossible to accomplish with one story or episode, so I'm going to spend the next three episodes focusing on this broad topic, along with three important characteristics of a father figure, leadership, bravery, and guidance highlighted in each. With that, I, BJ Dooley, welcome you to another episode of Dust Off the Shelf, stories of history and everyday life. The spring of 1940 was one of the darkest times in modern history. The year prior, after years of foreshadowing and unprecedented occupations, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime invaded Poland, which resulted in England and France declaring war on the rising fascist nation. For a time, nothing happened, and the Allied forces thought the war would end and negotiations for peace could be started. Near the beginning of the year, however, the Nazis went on the offensive taking Denmark and Norway within a matter of weeks, during which the British Navy was crippled and would be out of commission for quite some time. The people of England and the Labour Party of Parliament were furious, and they threw the blame at the feet of the Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. Within days, Chamberlain resigned, leaving the Conservative Party with the task of finding someone else to take his place. At first, Chamberlain and several ranking members of the party insisted that the popular Lord Edward Wood of Halifax should take the position. Their plans were decimated, however, when Lord Halifax declined, leaving them with the only other qualified man to take his place, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill had seemingly prepared his entire adult life to be Prime Minister, even stating once, I felt that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and for this trial. But this promotion was also extremely controversial. He often had views that were considered extreme. He openly criticized his superiors and had been in charge of several disastrous military campaigns, including the naval disaster at Norway. King George himself was reluctant to accept Churchill. But he and the ranking members of the Conservative Party knew that aside from Halifax, Churchill was the only person that the Labour Party would accept. And seeing that unity during a war was essential 
to boost morale and victory, they extended the invitation to him, and on May 10th of 1940, he became the new Prime Minister. Sadly, Churchill would have no time to settle into his new position, as on this day, the Nazi forces began their infamous Blitzkrieg movement. This would become one of the darkest days of the war, as the Nazis not only invaded Belgium, but pushed a massive force through the Ardennes, a mountain range that was thought to be impassable. Within days, the Allied forces were completely surrounded and were pushed back to the coast, until on May 26th they became trapped in the town of Dunkirk. This undoubtedly was a stressful situation for Churchill, especially considering that the British army was at risk of being annihilated, and the wrong decision would mean their doom. It didn't help that the people that Churchill had chosen to sit in his war cabinet were against many of the decisions Churchill made. Like any good leader, Churchill had chosen to surround himself with men and women who disagreed with his viewpoints. Though this may seem idiotic, it is actually a smart move on his part. Though the final decision will be left to Churchill, it often helped to have a different perspective at the table to help see the other options, and to find middle ground on key decisions as well. In this moment, however, his war cabinet insisted that he negotiate with Hitler to save their army and nation, an action that Churchill refused to take. He had already seen that the Nazis would not only ignore any terms that halted their conquest, but they also wouldn't accept anything that would leave England intact as a nation. He was insistent on keeping up the fight, but with his entire cabinet against him, he realized that he would soon have no choice but to go along with the peace treaty. With that, he made a choice that few government leaders have ever made or do so today. He turned to the people to see what they wanted him to do. This, to me, shows the kind of character that Churchill was. Many leaders often make decisions that go against the desires of their people, a mistake that becomes more and more common as leaders and government officials spend all of their time with their government peers. Churchill, however, was different. When he was faced with a crucial decision, he went to the streets to talk with the everyday man and woman to see what it was the people actually wanted from him and what he found gave him the resolve he needed to keep fighting until the bitter end. He asked the people if they should negotiate with the Nazis, and everyone he asked said no. They told him that they would fight to save their homes and their loved ones, and that they would pitch in to help in any way possible. With that, Churchill knew that he would continue the fight, and with this newfound resolve, he turned to his close friend and ally, Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey, for his help in pulling off an unheard approach in saving their army. He asked Ramsey to send his fleet to start evacuations in Dunkirk. And when Aunt Ramsey said that they didn't have enough ships, he asked him to turn to local boat owners for their help in the evacuation. In what would later be called Operation Dynamo, over 800 civilian ships volunteered to take the perilous crossing across the English Channel to war-torn Dunkirk to save their men from destruction. By June 4th, 338,000 troops have been rescued. A true miracle, especially considering that at most the British expected to rescue 20,000. 
This operation helped to boost the morale of the nation. But Churchill knew that more was needed to help the morale throughout the nation stay strong in the dark days ahead. On June 4th, the very day the last of the British troops had been rescued, Churchill entered the House of Commons to give one of his most famous speeches to Parliament. I can imagine him taking the stand, clutching this powerful speech with his hands, knowing the future of the nation and the world rested in what he was about to say. He may have been nervous, with perhaps a drop of sweat or two running down his cheek. Perhaps he even doubted his ability to bring courage to the hearts of his fellow countrymen. Whatever was going through his head, though, he nonetheless turned to Parliament, opened his mouth, and began to speak. Turning once again, and this time more generally, to the question of invasion, I would observe that there has never been a period in all of these long centuries of which we boast when an absolute guarantee against invasion, still less against serious raids, could have been given to our people. In the days of Napoleon, the same wind which would have carried his transports across the channel might have driven away the blockading fleet. There was always the chance, and it is that chance which, is, which has excited and befooled the imaginations of many continental tyrants. Many are tales that are told. We are assured that novel methods will be adopted. And when we see the originality of malice, the ingenuity of aggression, which our enemy displays, we may certainly prepare ourselves for every kind of novel stratagem and every kind of brutal and treacherous maneuver. I think that no idea is so outlandish that it should not be considered and viewed with a searching. But at the same time, I hope with a steady eye. We must never forget the solid assurances of sea power, of which belong to air power if it can be locally exercised. I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once again able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades at the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen, all may fall into the grip of the Gestapo, of the odious apparatus of the Nazi rule. We shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. 
We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. True leaders like Churchill have always been hard to come by. The temptations and power that come from leadership positions are often hard to resist. This is why leadership is a key part to any father figure. Like Churchill, a true father figure must be willing to take the helm in good times and bad. He must be willing to hold firm to the cause no matter what. He must also be willing to come down to your level to best understand how to help you. Lastly, when the storms of life come, as they always do, he must inspire those he leads with his words, to remind them of who they are, where they came from, what they stand for, and most importantly, why they need to keep fighting to stay strong. Thank you so much for listening to this latest episode. I hope you enjoyed it and you learned something from it as well. This is a three-part mini-series that I'll be doing on father figures. In the next part, we'll be covering the aspect of bravery, and in part three, guidance. So I will be fairly busy with uh, this aspect, the, these father figure stories, for the next few episodes. But if you still have a story, whether it's yours, a historical story, or somebody that you know in your life that is inspiring and can help others, feel free to send it to me or contact me at my personal email, dooley, D-O-O-L-E-Y, B-J-1-10, at gmail.com. And as I stated in the last episode, please share this with anybody you think needs to hear the story or enjoys stories and history in general. And ask them to share it as well. And anyways, I hope you enjoyed this. And I hope you have an excellent upcoming week. Stay safe and God bless. Mm-hmm.